0: Hey, this is Todd Zuckerman from Sticks. You're listening to Iron City Rocks.
1: Hey, this is Joe Grisecki, and you're listening to Iron uh, City Rocks. Yeah, hey, everybody, it's No Slofgren. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. You keep rocking and stay safe. Oh!
2: Welcome to episode 458 of the Iron City Rocks Podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 458, we're joined by two members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We have joining us from the Eastry Band, Mr. Nils Lofgren, who has got a great new kind of career-spanning retrospect available digitally called bonus tracks we'll talk about that in just a few moments also joining us from the black arts of joan jett and the black arts fame we have guitarist ricky bird joining us to talk about a new album he has out called sobering times really looking forward to that uh conversation and uh lastly joining us uh not in the rock and roll hall of fame just yet uh but great things um Great career trajectory for Samantha Fish, who will be coming through and actually doing a live show in Pittsburgh. Great to hear uh, that that there's some live events returning to the city of Pittsburgh. So we will talk to her in a while as well. So first up, Mr. Nils Lofgren, um, obviously was in, in uh, solo artist uh, for many years. Joined the E Street Band in uh, for the Born in the USA tour. Also was in a uh, band called Gin. Uh, so some of those tracks uh, with, this, with the band, as well as a majority of these being from his uh, solo career, are available. Uh, were available on a CD, which is not available anymore. Uh, it was actually a collection of CDs of too many for more than just one. But bonus tracks is now available digitally. Uh, 39 songs, uh, including uh, some collaborations with... Lou Graham of Foreigner fame. Um, This actually just blew my mind. I was totally, um, had forgotten that Nils played guitar on uh, Lou's album Ready or Not, which featured the hit single Midnight Blue uh, in the later part of the 80s, actually, after he joined Springsteen's band. So, talk to him about how he came to work with uh, Lou Graham. We talk about life with Bruce Springsteen and, and preparing for tours with Bruce and the amount of songs and talk about uh, the, you know, the legacy of the Clemens family on saxophone and the E Street Band as well. So really enjoyed talking with Nils. So we're going to play a little bit of Nils, get into that interview.
1: Armies play, families fight, long work day, sleepless night. Some try so hard, but not for the team So some must
3: dream
1: Restless souls, shattered hearts Talk of peace that never starts Self-proclaimed saviors just float downstream
3: So some must dream Follow your heart Yes, some must dream Dream sweet, dreams, dream Dream sweet, dreams, dream sweet dreams dream dream sweet dreams dream 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 people cry some for joy we're not here destroy some live so poor and still shine so clean yes yeah, some must dream follow
2: Gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have joining us Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nils Lofgren. How are you doing this morning, Nils?
1: I'm great, John. It's good to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm
2: doing really well. It is a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Um, you have just you. released a, a very large collection called Bonus Tracks, um, which really seems to run the gamut of your career. Can you talk about kind of the timing of putting this collection together?
1: Well, you know, um, in fairness, uh, I think it was in 2014, about seven years ago, Fantasy Records worked with me and my wife, Amy. To, we worked over two years to produce what I probably my favorite release, for obvious reasons, is a 10-disc, 138-page book uh, box set. Okay. And uh, two of the CDs, they were great because they let me, I mean, they had a lot of good input, but they let me make all the final decisions, and Amy oversaw all the artwork and it it was a beautiful package we were proud of it but two cds i filled up i went uh for many many months i went through old cassettes old dat tapes old cds just trying to uncover anything and everything uh... no matter how primitive to look at as um... some extras and i came up with you know pretty much all of these tracks and uh... we shared them initially seven years ago but shortly after um, i don't know if it was a couple years the um they ran out of what they printed and um again you know commerce gets in the way where i guess to print any more box sets in china they needed some insane order like 600 of them and mm-hmm. i don't know it was like 50 grand or 670 grand and of course the company didn't want to do it they couldn't uh print any less which made no sense to me but the box set became extinct So, um, you know, for the last four or five years, uh, again, like a lot of my old music, these tracks, unless you got the limited run of box sets, nobody heard them. And uh, my manager, Tom Goldfogle, had a great idea. Well, why don't you just share them as a download? We'll get them remastered and put it together so, you know, people can hear these because, you know, the box set was a boutique item, really one of my, you know, proudest uh, releases. But, Again, very obscure and limited run that that went out of print years ago. So anyway, that's the genesis of it. Uh, I just revisited everything and um, had a, a good friend of ours, Greg Lukens, master it up great and make it a little more current. And uh, you know, other than the very few people who have the box set, no one's really heard these. And it does go way back to some demos when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, teenager demos to very early stuff with Grin that never saw the light of day, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's all over the place, which I am as a writer anyway. But uh, it was kind of neat to go back and revisit it all and realize that there was a means to share it, uh, even though we couldn't get the entire box set reprinted as
2: a musician you've been you've been doing this for a very long time obviously Uh, is that the the age of digital where you can put things out in the immediacy of you know obviously it's not an immediate process you've got to go through the mastering and legal and all that stuff to get it on on the streaming services but is it somewhat nice to be able to get it to a broader audience than than maybe a, a cd from a You know, a record label that you'd have to put on your website and, you know, things like that. Is it nice to be able to have that distribution kind of ease up a little bit, even though the revenue isn't there?
1: So, being a free agent now, all these years, um, even though you prefer to uh, put out um, the CDs and hard copies along with digital, uh, and we've actually done some of the records in vinyl Mm. also, which is cool. My last studio record, Blue with Lou. Featuring six songs I wrote with the great Lou Reed, we did a vinyl also, but all all those uh, you know avenues are open to us. And in this case, uh, because it's kind of an obscure thing, uh, rather than be burdened with trying to you know do triple LPs right. or double CDs and all the artwork, which can go on for weeks and months, uh, Tom had the great idea: hey, why don't we just remaster it, get it sounding great, and put it out as a download? As a whole package and/or individual songs, depending on, like if an old Grin fan wants the four or five Grin tracks, no one ever heard that kind of thing. So, right. um, it's it's if you have the freedom, which I didn't have until the mid '90s, it's great to use any and all of the technology, just to facilitate sharing music.
2: Yeah, I mean it. It does really. You see a lot of artists now will do, you know, what we used to call EPs, uh, because they can. It, There's no. There's a, in a lot of ways, there's no rules. We're not concerned about you know 45 to 70 minutes worth of music that's going to fit in a in a package. And, and like you mentioned, the artwork and all this stuff can be.
1: I mean, it's all exciting, but it yeah. it goes on and on. And uh, Ringo, I just bought Ringo's new EP, which is great. Cool. And I've, I'm always impressed and inspired by how he keeps finding a way to create and make music. And um, you know, I've had a kind of a funky year. I, I was surprised how uh how blue i got without touring yeah and uh i i don't like leaving home but once i'm out there i got this fabulous 25 years with amy and our dogs and our son dylan's down the road but once i get out there i i just uh, especially the weathered album i think you can hear it in the grooves of the live band my brother tommy was with us andy newmark kevin mccormick cindy Mizelle who did hundreds of shows with me on the Bruce tours got to be good friends with me and Amy. Uh, and we had a remarkable time and I didn't plan on making a double live CD, but it was warranted cause it really Absolutely. had a great vibe to it. Yeah. But again, in this case, it's like a simple thing. Like, well, you've done the work you did, you know, probably a year of searching and rummaging through anything and everything to come up with this collection and no one its not accessible anymore. It's extinct, which is not the point of music. So, we decided let's just get it out, and uh, we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, it was it was great. You mentioned the live album, and, and it was it was neat that you you were mentioning Ringo. It was it was fun the story you told. And I don't want to spoil the story, but I, I recommend everybody go back and listen to the story on the live album. Uh, you told about Ringo. Yeah, it was a... yeah
1: and the, in front of uh, one of my favorite songs, "Girl in Motion," yeah. which is just a kind of a trio jam. You know, haunting tune that uh, I did on Silver Lining that Kevin McCormick produced, and anyway, it's a good story on the Weathered album. You can get it at nosoftman.com.
2: Absolutely. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you came to work with Lou graham Obviously, you played on Ready or Not, uh, fantastic record. Um, but you know, it was one of those things. I know when I was getting ready to talk to you, I was like, wow, oh, I forgot he played on that album. Can you just a little bit about that relationship? And obviously, Lou appears on the new collection.
1: Yeah, it was the strangest thing. I was in a rental apartment in L.A. where I, I lived for so many years, uh, going out there from Washington, D.C. as kids with Grimm. Uh And the phone rang the landline back in the, uh, I think, the early 80s, mid-80s. And it was Lou Graham. And, you know, I was listed, but I, knew, I wasn't used to getting, you know, many calls. And he uh, blew my mind. He said he was a fan he sounded great he said he's working on some solo music uh actually his first solo records outside of foreigner one of the great rock voices ever Mm -hmm. and uh turned out to be a really kind sweet man i went back east to rochester and played on his record uh did the first couple we went and did a couple uh did the arsenio hall show I went out and did uh, the Montreux Jazz Festival with Lou. And we've been friends ever since. So along the way, I had these tracks. And uh, you couldn't get a better duet singer than Lou Graham on um, Some Must Dream and I'll Rise," a song I wrote about my grandmother, Sicilian immigrant, uh, who's the reason I'm around. And, um, you know, he was kind enough to sing his ass off on them. And, uh, again, rarities that never got shared that should have been.
2: Yeah, I think anytime we can pull back, uh, pull out uh, some of those those great collaborations, I think even make them maybe just a little bit more special, you know, because, you know, no one's getting any younger, as they say, and, you know, there's some tracks that, you know, if, if you know, don't see the light of day, who knows if they ever will, so it's great. No,
1: that's, that's, that's actually true, and, you know, it's funny you say that, because uh, I'm kind of continuing to house clean, and rummage through the really primitive stuff uh, considering if I should in a few months maybe even share another batch of stuff that you know is, is not quite as organized or put together right. still has a great vibe to it but this was the cream of the crop that I spent a long time organizing and, and uh, it, was, it was just great to realize that although I couldn't um, commandeer the box set that belongs to Fantasy I'm really proud of it but it's a record deal Right. Uh, we had the freedom, since I own these songs, to get these out as a digital download for people to check out.
2: Can you share just a little story? Uh, one track, I think that, that pretty much anyone's going to listen to this, Miss UC. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the the story that you know the evolution of the song?
1: Yeah, you know, I uh, was working on. Let's see, I believe it was old school. And uh, Ray Charles had passed one of my a few albums ago, one of my studio releases, old school. I recorded here in Arizona in my home studio, with a lot of help from um, you know local engineers and musicians. But um, I was so shook up by Ray's passing, and I found myself kind of wallowing in the grief. And uh, I realized I was ignoring what's left.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: As <laughs> there's a lot of dear friends and family left, and I started thinking about that um, journey, and I wrote a song, "Miss You, Ray," uh, talk about you know, you know, we miss Smack King Cole, Billy Holiday, uh, people like that, and but you know, <laughs> life's still grand, and you got to look around because you can get lost in the grief. So obviously, when we lost Clarence, we were all devastated. Um, I was on stage in London, my last show of a tour. Uh, he was, we had hoped recovering from a stroke in Florida, and I had a ticket booked straight to Florida, and, um, you know, I got to the hotel, like, one in the morning, and I got the bad news that Clarence had passed, so, instead of flying there to just be with Clarence, um, still, you know, hoping against hope, he had a recovery in him, Uh, I flew home to Arizona, I got Amy, my wife, who knew Clarence really well, and they loved each other, and we went to Florida for his funeral. And, of course, uh, the, the band, the crew, everybody. He was such a huge, soulful presence and, and friend in all our lives. We stood stood together for 27 years on stage, and we talked a lot. Clarence and I would probably speak at length at least a couple times a week, just about anything and everything, uh, no topics off limits. So we were very close, and I thought, you know, uh, what can I say or do or sing? And I thought, well, the whole spirit of uh, Miss You Ray kind of speaks to Clarence because at that point I was grief stricken. So I rewrote the words to reflect the East Street family and some of our losses and made it more personal and saying, Miss You See. And uh, it was actually on my birthday, uh, June 21st, we had the service. And we went back to the hotel. And I was miserable, wanted to pack and get ready to go home the next day. And Amy, my wife, said, no, 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 we have to go out and celebrate your birthday. And it's like, I'm not into celebrating anything. We lost Clarence. She said, I know, but Clarence would want that. You're sitting here alone with me. You're inconsolable. And she kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and uh, booked a really nice restaurant for about 30 people, band and crew. And we went, and again, I, I was just, going along because I trust Amy but I wasn't into it and all of a sudden we had one of those five hour dinners where everyone laughed cried told stories commiserated and it was very healing something I would have missed which is the whole point of the song in the first place you know when you're stricken by that much grief if you stop looking around long enough you miss your life and uh, so God bless Amy for dragging us all out it was cathartic and healing for all of us and it's a beautiful somber night to just really outside of a church in a more formal ceremony, uh, you know, have some drinks and kick off your shoes figuratively and really let, let go with some dear friends where you're safe. And we did. And uh, then I had it home, of course, and it's something I've sang in my shows for a long time.
2: Yeah, that's a great, great story. Thank you for sharing. Um, when you, you've been. You know you've worked with with family members your brother you mentioned on on the live album when Jake came into the e Street band to take Clarence's place, was it somewhat helpful to you know to have some shared DNA there in you know somewhat the spirit of Clarence?
1: Yeah, I think it was. I mean this was kind of Bruce's Bruce's task, which he you know took very seriously and took a long time to figure it out whether or not mm. he wanted to yeah and honestly. You know, I I have so much love and respect for Bruce and everyone in the band. If Bruce said, look, I just can't... I don't feel right carrying on without Clarence, I couldn't have argued with him, but I was thrilled that he decided to find a way to keep playing as a band without Clarence, which just seemed almost insurmountable. Mm -hmm. But uh, having Jake just, you know... And and past... Nobody plays like Clarence, um, no matter who we hired. But, you know, having Jake as a family member plays plays the parts great you know improvises he sings and writes great stage presence he really challenged himself to take to the gig and you know pay homage to clarence and his role in it and it worked out and uh, that was one of the tours a lot of times we don't rehearse enough in my view Mm -hmm. before we hit the road but i that's just because i got you know i I think i travel with some some silly like number like 52 guitars on the road and it's just it's just kind of madness but I like time to ease into it and kind of prepare and this time we did take our time we took a long time to chip away at everything put a show together without Clarence really get used to it and not just rush off in front of an audience and and it really paid off and we went on to have great shows always with him you know spiritually by our sides sure. and on stage with us but it was a very heavy transition for everyone and sure. you know, no, nobody more than Bruce
2: when when you guys prepare for a, for a tour just just any tour with Bruce i mean to the fans it seems you get the impression sometimes that the that set is so fluid and, and you know he could call out anything as a musician that's not always easy i mean do you have do you guys have a set number of songs that you know a few weeks in advance you get an idea of here's the scope of what he might want to play or how much prep work do you have to do
1: well you know Initially, I mean, when I first joined the band in um, 1984, you know, Bruce went easy on me and we started with a list, list of 50 or 60 songs, okay. which was yeah. quite, quite an enormous list, but it grew and grew. And over the tours, we got to a point where we just all understood like, however you want to prepare, know that whatever the set list is, we will not be following it. Uh, There will be a sign or two pulled out of the audience, and you will probably at least once a night play a song you've never played in your life. And you're going to arrange it on stage at Bruce's mic in about 20 seconds, and he's going to count it off. So that kind of craziness became the norm, and then how do you adapt to that? Everyone does their own thing. I. I had a system with my techs where I had an emergency electric and acoustic and a capo and a slide on stage where, in a panic, I could grab one and at least get something going till I could tell my tech which instrument I really liked to have. Sure. Um, and, you know, of course, once Stevie came back in the band, which made us a much better band with his voice, his sound, his personality, mm-hmm. uh, I'd be, you know, we don't need three guitars on every song, so I challenged myself to become the swing man more because, uh, you know, we couldn't have better keyboard players and you know, Roy Bitton and, and Danny Federici. And, of course, Charlie took Danny's place, rest his soul, and we lost him and has done a superior job. But I challenged myself to learn pedal steel, bottleneck, dobro, right. lap steel, just some other sounds to put in the toolbox. So with that in mind and all those sounds and instruments, knowing your singer's never going to follow the set list, it's just an idea of what he's thinking, and uh, we got into a routine, which uh, you know made it very hairy and fun. And and Bruce, more than anyone knows that. Of course, if you're gonna do that kind of thing, it, there's gonna be rough edges. Sure. Unfortunately, he knows that. He just mainly just wants everyone down in it and trust their instincts. I used to, I I still like going over two three hours ahead of the band, so I have time to myself with my my tech, my machine, you know, my instruments, whatever mm-hmm. I'm thinking that day. Bruce might have said, hey, here's four or five things I'm thinking about soon, just to give you a heads up, and then invariably there'll be something that's a complete shock and and surprise that he didn't even know about until he was in front of the audience that night. What was it? One of of the fun things, I think it might have been the Wrecking Ball tour with Jake, but at some point there was one tour that ended, and I think uh, it was Kevin Buell, a dear friend who's worked with me, and Bruce's guitar tech you know, let me know that, hey, by the way, this tour, you guys play 267 different songs. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, man, that's wild. And another fun moment, uh, got to be really good friends with Tom Morello, yeah. who, uh, you know, of course, made High hopes with him before then, was subbing in while Steve was filling, uh, filming Lilyhammer in Norway. You know, he had this commitment. Um, and uh, we had a lot of fun. I mean, Tom, yeah, you know, of course, I was a new guy, and I was happy to help tom with however i could he's a master musician but we had a lot of fun and again the spirit is with bruce Hey, there's going to be rough edges i know that just stay down in it and we'll all be good and we are but i remember one night on the way to the stage you know very specific notes hey bruce says we're doing this we're going to change this here's the opening and on the way to the stage you know just as we were walking onto the stage bruce changed the opening of the show and you had a feeling that it was going to be one of those nights and sure enough the set list was completely useless. I mean, completely useless. He was just in one of those moods. He was just feeling it and going for it. And I think, uh, I don't know, we were in, you know, some giant place, and we were in the dark, and it was like I think yeah. a stadium gig. And, and we were all having fun, but it was a seat-of-your-pants night fr- from the get-go. And I remember at one point, you know, Tom, could i lean over and give Tom some ideas about whatever the chords might be, because, of course, I... 30-some years in, yeah. and uh, at one point, in a, in a moment when Bruce was talking, Tom ran up to me in the dark and tapped me on the shoulder and leaned in, so I leaned over and he said, hey, just want you to know, this is the first song I've recognized in an hour and 17 minutes. <laughs> That's...
2: And I
1: thought, that remains one of my favorite lines I've ever heard <laughs> yeah. on stage, and it kind of sums it all up.
2: I think as a fan, I mean, it's one of the things that, that really makes your show special. But as a musician, it, it just sounds terrifying, you know, to be.
1: Well, it, doing it, that. it would be it would be untenable if the singer expected perfection. Yeah, yeah. That's because true. if he said, "Look, um, I need you to know intimately every twist and turn of 400 songs." I would say, don't hire me. Right. You know, I'm not your guy, man. I'm, you know, I left the classical accordion, you know, to play blues and improvise. So I'm not your guy. But, but again, the the crux of it all is that Bruce knows himself. Uh, that th- some songs are just too um, dangerous in the sense that you know the train wreck is inevitable. Yeah. And others, most of the time, he has a good horse sense of what's really. Uh, maybe a little too adventurous and hairy, but they lead to great moments. I mean, there's a great thing on YouTube of uh, You Never Can Tell, a uh, Chuck Berry song. And uh, as we're working out what key to play it in and all that, uh, he's like humming horn lines to a five-piece horn section, (laughs) like expecting them to have charts... So he's humming horn lines, and the horn guys know they're like pros, and they know you can't write some crazy complicated shit. And he's humming a line, and they cop it, and uh, it somehow all works out. And of course, I'm familiar with Chuck Berry, but I didn't know that song. Yeah. But uh, I, I walked over, you know, Steve and Bruce are powwowing at the mic, and we all walk over. Roy usually jumps off the piano and comes down just to try to get in on the, the you know, the homework. And uh, so, okay, I hear Chuck say, what is this? What is this? Somebody said, you know, Gary, who knows all, I mean, Gary's like a librarian. He knows everything. Said, it's an old Chuck Berry tune. Okay, great. So I know it's Chuck Berry, so it's based in the blues. That's a good start. And then, you know, Steve and Bruce obviously know the song. They're trying to figure out what key is best to sing it in. And, you know, Bruce is playing with the capo. And so right off the bat, right there, you know, because you know you're going to, he's going to count it off in 15 seconds or less. So right there, I said to myself, "All right, I got two guitar players that know this tune. Once we have a key, I'm going to get my bottleneck and just play slide, so I can, you know, dot, you know, kind of weave around them. Yeah. And uh, you know, with a bottleneck, you just just keep moving the slide up the string until a note note works and right. you shake yep. it a bit. So it's kind of like common sense, and uh, you know, just in the in the heat of the moment, keep your, uh, you know expectations realistic like hey if we do this tomorrow night I'll have some time at the hotel to work out something different but right now I'm getting ready to play in front of an audience so I'm going to do I'll just stick to blues bottleneck kind of thing and you know we all sometimes the train wrecks are more than others but in general the audience usually finds those uh, hairy moments more endearing actually
2: yeah there's a certain level of excitement to it I think when you see that
1: and the audience knows it they feel it they they like the rough edges because uh, we we've all seen so many shows that are put together and and uh, you know look I've seen some shows that I know are kind of going to be the same almost note for note and I might be so uh, inspired by the, the 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 songwriting the singer the professionalism of the band whatever I might go see the show a second time but I I, I grew up on the blues uh, the Beatles the Stones. I I love that kind of improvisation, and I love rough edges. I mean, I got to see Muddy Waters play at the cellar door, and he let me hang out in the dressing room, watch him play cards, and those kinds of powerful, visceral... uh, I mean, look, at a very young age, I, I was 18, I got to make After the Gold Rush pretty much live with Neil Young, who, you know, convinced me to... Become, do my first piano sessions. Which I wasn't a professional piano player and just trust my instincts and keep it simple. And then that led to uh, making the Crazy Horse album with Danny Witten, Rest Danny's Soul. Uh, sorry we lost him. And that led to Tonight's Tonight, which was a completely live record in the studio. And, and Neil took it a step further. He didn't even want us knowing the songs too well. And um, he'd, you know, go over three or four songs. And that we didn't know. And he'd have me and Ralphie, Billy or Ben, all of us singing. uh, And we'd go play live with the idea. You know, David Briggs, our producer, and my kind of big brother mentor uh, who I was living with, said, look, when Neil gets the vocal, you're done. You can't change a note, so stay down in it all the time. And uh, the theme was, look, you play a song enough. A musician, a good musician, is going to go, ah, here's the riff for the verse, I'm going to play this every time. Uh, here's a great riff in the chorus, I'm going to play that every time. And that works musically, but Neil didn't want that. He wanted everything bobbing and weaving, see to your pants, kind of as we discovered the song with each other before we knew the song. So I- I've been taught by some great yeah. teachers, got to grow up and see some great bands. I mean, the night I saw The, the Who and... Uh, Herman's Hermits and the Blues Magoos at Constitution Hall. We all ran across town to see Jimi Hendrix's experience Slate Show at the Ambassador Theater, our imitation Fillmore East. And that night I walked out of there possessed with the notion to try being a rock musician, which was very foreign to me. Never occurred to us in the mid 60s you could do that. I mean, we loved Hendrix and the Beatles and Stones and all that, but never thought you could do that. And it was that night just inspiration. And uh, sure enough, I uh, headed out at 17, and 52 and a half years later or whatever, um, here I am, unemployed, <laughs> hoping, to, hoping this pandemic as a world, yeah. we get a handle on it, we can go out and play and sing again.
2: Yeah, that's that'll be an awesome opportunity, and, and I did want to touch on that. I mean, you guys, um, either your solo band or the E Street Band, really have the ability to kind of put any sort of plans in motion I mean obviously musicians you know seem to have tours booked two three years in advance but this has kind of screwed everyone in that regard do you have yeah. a kind of what's next
1: no no because you know there are some bands that have gone ahead and, and booked mm-hmm. like you know started locking in next summer and yeah. um, you know we're not one of them uh, the idea is there right but of course then you, you've got a lot of politics like live nation is uh, i think they i mean again i i might be talking out of turn because i don't pay a lot of attention to to the politics of music at all but i think i heard that they decided that they no longer want to pay for insurance and they want the acts to pay for insurance well that's not going to work you know with a lot of big acts a lot of big acts are going to be like hey i'm selling out stadiums whether it's pearl jam or bruce or whoever like so we're not going to do that and there's so many things to work out and then you have a pandemic where you cannot ask tens of thousands of people to gather or even thousands. Yeah. So I know some people are booking things with the idea that well we'll just keep booking a run and cancel it when we need to. But that's a lot of uh, work.
2: Yeah, and, that's, that's uh, a difficult proposition. Yeah, and
1: right right now I think the idea of maybe sometime next year being able safely to get back to it it's a great idea that has no legs right now right because the pandemic's raging and uh, we just got this brilliant vaccine thank god and of course you know at some point pretty soon we're going to get to the point where how do we convince people to take it that don't want to get the vaccine yeah and we've got our awful politics in this country which is shameful but a long way to go and and not just us playing and singing but uh, Amy and I would go out regularly and hear great bands. I think one of the last shows we saw was Branford uh Quartet oh, here yeah. in uh, the Scottsdale Arts Center. It was a brilliant show, and he's a dear old friend who played on the Blue with Lou album. This beautiful, haunted song Lou wrote with me called City Lights about Charlie Chaplin. And, you know, I just didn't even hear, I just couldn't be bothered playing guitar. I, I needed something better than that, or, or just more, I don't know, something... More soulful to the story, and I asked Branford to play on, it, and he played brilliantly. But he came through town. We had a nice visit, saw an amazing show, and that was one of the last things I saw. And we miss going out, you know, and uh, yeah. and seeing music. It's a lifeblood of the planet. I mean, music is the the planet's sacred weapon, man. It's healing, and you know, billions billions of people every day, and uh, you know, it's really hurt that people can't go out and do the normal, you know stress Stress reliever of going to see great music in a little bar or a big place. I mean, the littler the better for me. But if it's somebody great we know is going to inspire us, we'll go anywhere to see great acts. And um, Amy and I treated ourselves to... We had no idea it would be the last time we'd see Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He wasn't coming through Phoenix last tour. We went up to Red Rocks in oh, Denver. No. And uh, Benmont, the guitar player, was kind enough to help us out and get us in. And uh you know the those guys the heartbreakers and me opened a, i mean they opened for me in 77 all over england pro- probably one of their last gigs is a opening act because they were had damn the torpedo in the works yeah, but literally. one of the great bands you know we went to see them and there are people that you know it's worth a plane trip and all that goes with it because you're going to be inspired
2: absolutely and, uh,
1: yeah, and that's been taken away and I know the entire globe is sorely missing it and waiting anxiously for it to come back safely
2: Amen to that Mills. Amen. Well I want to thank you so much I want to congratulate you on and bonus tracks are fantastic and also uh, your performance on Letter to You uh, an amazing album, glad to see it have great chart success Cannot Yeah to I was see so you happy, you know of that. course
1: Bruce, we, we had this magical week in his studio uh, at his and Patty's house and we we were waiting he was waiting to put the album out and go play which we had hoped would be sooner mm-hmm. but uh, uh and, and our country in particular really did a you know sinful job of handling the pandemic and uh yeah. it was just it's just a tragedy of epic proportions and um thankfully bruce realized hey you know we're not going to tour soon let's not let's share this music yeah it's very hey. special let's get it out and at least share it with people and and I thought that was a great decision
2: yeah and it is a very uh, the word special I think is even a little bit understood I think it's a phenomenal album um, and it really I think spoke to a lot of people uh, you yeah know, the, the timing of it was together almost, was
1: beautiful too yeah
2: yeah it really worked yeah the Western Stars was fantastic too
1: another great piece
2: yeah yeah well Nils thank you so much for the time again folks can check out bonus tracks on um, streaming services your website you've got um, the live album, uh, Blue with Lou, available for purchase. I we'll to invite folks to get that.
1: Uh, great yeah, and the, well. and the live Weathered album is just yeah. a, I mean, one of my favorite live albums, maybe my fi- favorite live album I've ever done. And there's a lot of free video and download stuff at com that uh, people can check out. And, um, man, I appreciate you spreading the word on the bonus yeah. tracks.
2: Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: You got it, John. All the best.
2: All right, thank you to Nils Lofgren. Uh, really enjoyed having a chance to talk to him again. Bonus tracks available now at nilslofgren.com. We'll have a link on our website as well. Turning our attention now to another member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Joined the Black Hearts with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts in 1981. I believe they released the eponymous I Love Rock and Roll album, uh, which... As we talk about in the interview for um, Someone of My Generation, that song was kind of like a Beatles moment. Uh, That snare drum comes rolling in and uh, the crunchy guitars and Jones screaming. Uh, Really was so different than anything on the radio and MTV at the time. That uh, Kind of a, a trippy moment. So it was really enjoyable to get a chance to talk to Ricky Bird, who was a member of the band for, I think, about 10 years, played through the Up Your Alley Album which had I Hate Myself For Loving You So some some big hits in the Joan Jett catalog uh, He was there for all of that uh, He has a new album It was just released called Sobering Times uh, He has um, become a real champion He's been sober for um, well over three decades um, Went through that fight and continues to walk that, uh, that road And is now a certified uh, uh, substance abuse counselor uh, does a lot of work, a lot of great work with with people suffering from substance abuse, which, as we talk about in the interview, is not something that's gone away in the pandemic era. So we're going to talk about the, the music he makes, how he gets the music out to people, etc. in that interview. So we're going to play a little bit of Ricky Bird. We'll get into that interview. <laughs> This is gentlemen my pleasure to welcome to iron city rocks we have rock and roll hall of famer ricky bird on the line how you doing man
0: i'm doing pretty good on this uh it's a beautiful new york day today
2: that in itself is this you know it seems like for the last year even when the weather's nice things have been a little tough especially in new york um but brighter days hopefully ahead um you are about with days away from dropping uh, your latest album, "Sobering Times," which I, I love. The kind of, and I don't know if it was intended as a double meaning, but I think, you know, from reading your bio and knowing your past history with, with um, you know, the fight for rehabilitation and things like that, obviously has a meaning. But when you think about twenty 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 one, sobering times. Uh, so yeah, let's talk so about so the, the collection tunnel, of songs.
0: The title sort of presented itself to me when I got to that point when I was trying to figure out what the title is. And and if I showed yeah. you my phone, the notepad, I had like, um, I don't know, 50 titles. And probably 45 of them really were awful. And then five of them, you know, that were pretty good. Then you Google them and you find out that they've all been used for something already. So sure. this this title just came... I was on a conversation with somebody in the middle of, of uh, this pandemic, and I just said, man, these are really sobering times. And my brain just went, oh, man, come on, really? That easy?
2: Yeah. That's the
0: title. It, it,
2: sometimes the, the things you think about the least kind of hit you like, like a lightning rod. Um oh, yeah. the, the collection up this album, obviously, you know, you wear your heart on your sleeve in your lyrics. Um, were these somewhat, you know, this collection of songs, somewhat relatively new were some of these you know kind of going back to the well of things you've written in the past or how do you um, kind of put the comp collection together Um,
0: well all of these songs as well as the songs that are on the Clean Getaway record which was uh, the previous one to this uh, were or are tunes that I do play live when I go around and do recovery music groups at treatment facilities around the country or schools you know uh, or juvenile detention centers or whatever but mm-hmm. that's that's actually where my um that's where these songs come from now i don't know if i'll be able to do all of these songs in in uh when i, when I get back out there to to the recovery music groups because some of them are pretty rock and roll you know sure i don't know if i could bring it down to one guy me on my acoustic but i'll try and um i kind of like use it as uh woodshedding when i write the songs you know, like I go out there now with the songs from Clean Getaway and then I add every time I come up with a new one that wound up on this record, I would play it, uh, try it out in front of the clients in treatment. And I could tell from the reaction if the lyrics were spot on. You know, the music's always cool, but um, just it's about them identify, identifying with the lyrics and seeing if I get the reaction that I'm looking for from them, whether it's, you know, uh, Laughter, or or identification, or even some tears, like if I if I just hit the right notes, um, and and that's where the songs come from.
2: How you know? Obviously, you you've walked the walk in in this, you know, in this arena of recovery, for, and, and carried the torch and done some amazing work. But when you're presenting material like this to people who are going through this, is that? Uh, a, a little more difficult than you know, just laying down a, a normal, you know, rock song on an on an audience where you know you're you're really talking about something they know intimately, as opposed to you know, you know when I listen to a, a Neil Young record and I'm listening to him t- tell a story, it's it's a story, you know, but you're talking about real life things to these folks. Does that add some pressure to you, or is that inspiring?
0: Um. Well, I, there's no pressure. The only thing that's going to be confusing is like once we get out of this pandemic where it's really clear to go out and play stuff mm-hmm. um, uh, like, like semi-normally, um, you know, where do I take this? I mean, I know that, uh, I mean, I have my, my, my venues of treatment facilities. is It's a given. I've been doing that for years. But if I want to bring it out to like c- civilians or, you, you know, or people just not in treatment, it could be, Right. You're playing to somebody somewhere um, and, and there's there's always somebody struggling with something. So um, I think that's probably pretty common for, for the human condition. But, you yeah. know, do I want to play this in a club, in a bar? I don't I, you know. I mean, it's not that I can't play the songs in a bar, but like I would like to have people come from treatment like to come listen and stuff. You know, I got to figure out how to do this where I could get both sides of the coin come to, to listen to it. As far as um, um, I just... I mean, I, I write the songs for for my mission, which is to try to help people struggling with addiction um, to identify with the stuff, um, and also maybe see some solutions in, in what I'm singing about. Um, also, people that are already in recovery it would it would certainly remind them why they're in recovery. Um, and then, if you're just a rock and roll fan, and this is this none of these issues affect you, I mean, it's hard these days to, that something doesn't affect you because. It may not be yeah. you, but it's somebody in your family. Um, so, I mean, if you're just a rock and roll fan, you're going to love the rock and roll side of it. But um, I, I don't feel any pressure. I mean, I just do what I do, and then the, the people that get affected by it are going to get affected by it. You, you're not going to hit all all points. The key is I want to I want to get to as many people around the world that are, are, are struggling with this. I mean, we know music, you know, is, is used as a healing tool. And I mean, I've seen it work firsthand and I see it because I get responses from people that pick up the record, you know, not necessarily that are in treatment. I mean, I give, when I go to treatment to do these groups, I give out copies. Right right now, I mean, obviously I give out uh, copies of Clean Getaway to them so they could take the music home with them after they leave. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, and I'll be doing that with this record once I get back out there doing that. And um, the thing is, I tried to, on this record, to sort of widen the path a little bit. So, I mean, first of all, there's no preaching allowed on these records. I don't think it's, uh, hopefully, yeah. nobody finds it, that, that it's on preaching. I'm just kind of laying the cards on the table, and then you make what it, uh, make of it what you will. But yeah. um, I tried to write some stuff on the record that's not specifically about uh, addiction. It's just about finding your way out of the rabbit hole, kind of. You know what I mean? Like the song, mm-hmm. I Come Back Stronger, I mean, it has nothing to do with addiction per se. It's about getting knocked down and picking yourself back up and coming back stronger.
2: Yeah, and that's a that's a theme that resonates with anybody with two feet, you know, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's maybe what makes the album, I think, resonate, at least to me personally. You know, I, I've been blessed not to have you know, addiction issues, but the songs that like you mentioned, I don't feel like you've got, you know, them in mind or, you know, the folks suffering with that in mind. Only, you know, these songs still, you know, strike a chord. I think in anybody that's got any kind of issue and I think who in, in this modern era in the last 18 months doesn't have some kind of crap they're going through. Uh, yeah,
0: you know, and, and I just and want... But let's not forget, this is just a fun rock and roll record as well. Yeah, you know that's that's the main thing. It's like this sounds like what I am. This record, the, yeah. musically, um, and it's also lyrically what I am. But I, I just want people to to understand that you know I'm trying to help people in a in a certain um, situation. But I just want everybody to enjoy the the rock and roll side of it as well. Um, yeah, and and you know it's almost like the hardest thing to do is to get people to listen to you, especially I'm talking about like in the recovery music groups. Like you you come in there and, and you're like, these people are in, in treatment. Some of them, I mean, if you got 60 people you're playing to, some just got there. Some are almost finished with their treatment. Well, different levels and people are not happy. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be there. Maybe it's the holidays. Um, and, and, I mean, they're struggling and, um, I hope that that uh, you know what I bring to them sort of gives them uh, uh, a little bit of hope because I don't only really play I, I'm, I'm also I, I talk you know I speak and I tell right. them my story a little bit but um, and I'm also certified as a recovery coach and a, a drug and alcohol counselor which I haven't been able to put to too much use obviously but because um, I just only went to school like two years ago but um, the point is is that. You know, I go in there and I'm this guy, this rock and roll guy. This this, this is to my point of like getting people to listen. So I know already my angle as I come in there with my tattoos in the summer. You know, like you know, no jacket and stuff. And I and and they say, yeah, he's in the, he played with so and so, and he's played with all these people, and he's in the rock and roll hall of fame. So th- it it gives them like like that's my angle. Like so that I know they're listening to me. It's right. almost like, oh, cool, man, not a suit. Like, he's a rock and roll guy. Let's What's he got up his sleeve, yeah? So I get them to listen to me. Then it's up to me to present the message where hopefully they take something away um, that's going to be a positive influence one way or another. And, you know, I, I, I know it does because, to some of them because I get messages from them when they leave treatment. I mean, I tell everybody when I'm there, dude, I'm, I'm really easy to find that, you know, on social media. So just when you when you get out of here, tell me how you're doing. I love to hear that. Um, uh, and if, you, if they ran out of CDs that I left there, um, find me and tell me, I'll put one in the mail for you. So I, I kind of have like this, this evidence-based, listen, I, I'm not, by no means am I saying that this is like the cure for addiction. It's just like another tool to use mm-hmm. because it's all about, oops, my earbud just fell out. It's all about, um, people identifying. I mean, that that's the thing with addiction is we we all feel that we're unique and nobody has the same troubles we have, which is why I love community support group meetings, which is, which is yeah. why I'm still clean. It's one of the reasons I'm still clean and sober after over 33 years, I still go to them is because you walk into a room and nobody necessarily looks like you. Everybody does something different for a living, but once everybody starts talking, it's like, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. So I'm just trying to do that. <laughs> That's all do, I'm trying to do.
2: Do you find that, that, by doing this type of work it helps you in, in you know your life i mean obviously you mentioned 33 years of, of sobriety and that's that's amazing um but does this help you on that journey personally you know kind of
0: oh hell yeah man. working with folks so some, the, the hardest thing to do you know as time goes on and you know life becomes more normal for you as as somebody who is a, uh, is, has addiction issues. I mean, if you ask me right now, Hey man, do you like, are you struggling? Like, do you want to go out and use it? Like, no, it's like, it's been a long time since I felt that, um, that urge, uh, that, that, that compulsion and obsession. Um, but, uh, but, um, what happens is over time you become complacent. Maybe you don't go to as many community support group meetings. You don't stay, you don't call people. You know, you don't share what's going on in your little, you know, pea brain. Um, well, that might get you into trouble. I mean, you know, uh, make no mistake. Like I've, I've made, uh, you know, 101 errors in judgment and recovery. I, I haven't picked up a drink or a drug, though. Thank God. Uh, and you learn from everything. Every, every time you you hit a wall, you learn from it, the experience and you try to do better next time. But um, what happens? You can get it, right? Um, but this this work that I do keeps me involved uh in in the recovery universe where i'm always like talking about it i'm i'm playing to people that are, are are in recovery or struggling i mean in this in the last year i've done maybe almost a dozen recovery recovery events on zoom from my basement you know me and my guitar
2: has the last year i mean... Is it been? I, I, it almost seems like a stupid question, but I mean, has this made this infinitely harder for those in need of recovery to to get what they need and to get the social support Uh-oh. they need? Or has technology helped bridge that gap at
0: all? Well, um, if you're in the know and you're already in recovery, there is no excuse. If you believe in twelve step stuff, there are so many meetings; it's unbelievable. Like if you just Google twelve stuff step, whatever your, you know, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever your problems are, or your issues are. And, and you you know, you go 12 step zoom meetings, like you get all these links. So, so, I mean, for myself, I've been actually, uh, I was turned on to a really great one, um, out of Florida, actually like a men's meeting, which I've been going to, uh, most I'm not going to say most days because I'd be exaggerating at this point. The first like six or seven months, I was going pretty much every day. And now I'm sort of promoting the record. So I'm like always busy around the time because it's like a noon meeting. Yeah. But um, there's no excuse to not hit them. Like people go, well, I, I don't like those Zoom meetings. I want to be in person. Well, yeah, but you can't be in person now. So what are you going to do? Not go? Yeah. Um, so So I got that. And also I feel like, and I've heard this from several people that have long-term recovery it's like I feel like I've been in training for this because I have this whole kind of you know toolbox of recovery that I pull from and I have so many phone numbers and I'm always talking to people you know not that I don't have friends and stuff that aren't in recovery but I know that it's uh, at least a couple of times a day I connect with somebody that's in recovery and we kind of you know one day you're the lead dog one day I'm the lead dog if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you're stronger sometimes I'm stronger and um i stay connected so it's actually helped tremendously with like fear cuz you know i'd be lying if i didn't say it got really scary here in new york um it's it's way better now but at the beginning it was like what is it's like a stephen king movie here what the hell's going on but you know i relied on what i've been doing for the last 33 plus years and um and it it, it helped tremendously now on the streets i think the overdose rate or the relapse rate um, is up like 30% or something like that. So yeah, it's become a really big issue. Um, and also harder to get into treatment. Um, obviously they weren't letting people into treatment. I mean, I can't even, I do this thing once a month. I go out to this place in New Jersey to this really cool, great treatment facility. Like it's like part of my family at this point. Um, and I've been doing it once a a month for three years and I haven't been there in a year. Like they won't let anybody in yet. Mm -hmm. And I would do my groups. You know, I would do a group for the guys and a group for the ladies. So, and 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 I'm sure that for people that need treatment, it's become more difficult. You know, so it's, uh, hopefully we're getting to the point where it's starting to ease up a little bit. And um, uh, I've thought many times during this, in the heat of this, back in April, let's say. I am so grateful I'm not um, somebody that's new in recovery or not in recovery. And I'm, and I'm trying to convince myself it's okay to go out and cop right now in the middle of a pandemic and be around strangers because, you know, yeah. file it under seems like a good idea. And, yeah. and, and if you're, if you're in the heat of using then a pandemic is nothing. It's like, no, I'll be fine. They, I'll, yeah. I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be right back.
2: Well, it it seemed like you know from a from a news standpoint the opioid crisis kind of got pushed to the side and obviously you know they report on what people want to know about but you know the problem isn't going away and you know and i, I always wondered if, you know this made it worse and i think your your stats kind of bear that out that you know just because it's not the headline on the news every night doesn't mean it's not still there and and
0: Oh, it, it, it's it's absolutely made it worse. There's there's no question about it. But it, you know, the other side of that coin is it's also made people that are in recovery stronger. I think because you know the the, the one of the big uh, issues not issues. I'm sorry. Uh, w- one of the big uh, points of being in recovery is that you pass it on to somebody else, mm-hmm. and it's given us the opportunity knowing you're helping somebody else. But when you pass it on to somebody else. You're helping yourself too, see. Yeah. Because when you do stuff for other people, it gives you self-esteem. When you have self self-esteem, you're less likely to want to hurt yourself. You know, it's like a whole cycle. So, so the point being is, like, for people that are in recovery, it's for the, that 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 do the work. Um, we've been reaching out all over the place. I mean, listen, I've been known to put stuff on social media and say, listen, uh, if anybody is uh, struggling a little bit, just PM me if anybody needs to chat. And I've had like a handful of people over time people are strangers you know from all over the place so i, I think it's, it's 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 horrible for people that are not in recovery right now uh it's, it's a tough place to be and for people in recovery you really get a chance to to do what you're supposed to be doing right which hopefully that that gets some people through it
2: um on on a much lighter note um 2021 brings up a, a kind of an important milestone in the in the world of rock, in the 40th anniversary of, of the breakout album. I love rock and roll. I, I think back, and I know a lot of people in generations will cite the Beatles and the Stones and Ed Sullivan's Show uh, as kind of what turned them on to rock. And I think back personally to a black and white video in in uh, a bar with you guys, and I think that might've been the moment where I said as a young man, damn, I need to get a guitar. Did you guys have any sense? Yeah. I mean, it it is, I think back to, you know, you know, at the time I was less than 10, I'll I'll say that. And I remember distinctly, you know, that was like, Holy crap. What is that? You know, compared to what was on the radio at the time, um, did you do you have any kind of memories in particular of making that album and, and the you know the cover of I Love Rock and Roll in particular that kind of stood out to you?
0: Um. Well, we did the record out in Long Island, and um, yeah, I don't know. Does, does anybody know? I, I'm sure in the old days of songwriting, like you know, Stax Vault or Motown, they would say this is definitely a hit. You know, Mm -hmm. and they would or this is a hit for Marvin Gaye or this is a hit for Smokey. Uh, I I, I don't know, man, you're recording this song. um, It it sounded radio friendly for sure. Sure. But you also have to look at there's so many things have to do with why records are a hit. You know, like what else is on the charts at the same time? What's being played? Does Does this record stand out? And yeah, if you look at the charts back then, the crunchy guitars and Jones voice and the energy we had stood out on the radio it did, nothing else sounded like it right then. I mean, I think Jay Giles was on there um, yeah. no, 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 no. Michael Jackson, I think um I can't remember who else was on there but but the point is is that this record came out it was just like right from the get go uh those drums that 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 that, 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 that you know it, it just yeah, like, it stood like out And, and wake still, up you you still know the truck is coming when you hear it now in a supermarket. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, to this day. So uh, I, I don't know if we we were like, oh, cool, this is a hit. We were just we did a record and then we hit the road. You know, we we went out and started playing clubs again, and and then the record came out and it started climbing the charts and things got bigger. So I don't know. I mean, it's cool to hear that that was your moment. My moment was the one you said. Like I saw the Stones and the Beatles. In fact, I just yeah. did something for another for a magazine, and I was saying I remember seeing. That that video, and I, and I I found out yesterday because I Googled it, it was from Top of the Pops, 1968, right? Yeah. So I was uh, 12, and I saw the Stones doing Jumpin' Jack Flash with all the makeup and Brian Jones with this, like, gold face. And I think it was in black and white, though, but, like, uh, uh, Bill Wyman was wearing eye makeup, and I just went, ooh, this is for me. This is, like, either scary or attractive. I'm not sure what the hell's going on here, but where do I sign up? <laughs> It looked really that's, that's, like 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 this. This will put society on its ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's I,
2: I remember. You know, at the time, you know, MTV was, you know, infancy. You know, in those kind of early days, and, and you know, we still kind of, you know, a lot of the music we we're listening to came, you know, from the radio, and the radio wasn't playing. You know, there was kind of the. I dare say, oldie station, you know, was playing some of the stuff of my you know my parents enjoyed, like the Stones, which you know obviously are, are, hallowed music as well. But something in particular I remember about I love rock and roll, where it was like, you know, one of the first kind of hard rock tracks that was a genuine hit for my generation. You know, it wasn't, you know, something you found in somebody's record collection. It was here. It was now. It was you know on the top ten on the radio. Um, along with you know, the Banana Rama's and the Duran Duran and you know all those you know kind of stuff, but it, it, it was such a different sound, you know. That yeah. it, and it, funny
0: it, enough, it, we did a, we did TV shows in Europe with all of those people you just mentioned. We were you know yeah. all those the German TV shows you know Joan Jet and the Blackhearts Banana Rama you know uh, yeah uh, who else Well, you said Duran Duran. Duran Duran was like bigger at that point but it was like yeah uh, they were uh now i can't think of anybody but i could picture them
2: the thompson twins
0: and yeah yeah all that stuff but you know also at the time for guitar players eddie van halen you know yeah like like all all of van halen stuff i mean none of that was my turning point because i'm older so like Right when I saw P. P- Townsend playing, or or, or or you know saw Humble Pie for the first time, or, or Rod Stewart in the faces or the, yeah. of obviously the Beatles and the Stones, like you mentioned, that was the stuff from my my um, earliest memory of like oh yeah I got to do this. Like I remember yeah, hearing yeah. my generation for the first time. I was like what what is this? Can I do this too?
2: Yeah, it, it, to me it was just you know it was one thing I I, I thought about scheduled this, I was like, you know what, I, I think back, you know, this was kind of before the advent of, you know, what became hair metal. Um, you know, Death Leopard hadn't kind of broke, Wyatt Ride hadn't broken, not to even put the band, but in the in the same kind of genre, but you know, at, at the time, The Who, for example, you mentioned, they were doing face dances. The Stones were making yes. but they weren't really as rebellious at the time,
0: yes. you know, so I just, uh,
2: it really struck, a, I think, a really cool chord.
0: Um, and then there's know, people after us, man, that they'll tell you, they'll mention a band, and I don't even know who the hell they're talking about, like yeah. a new band. It's like this yeah. is what made me want to play guitar. I heard so and so on. Like who's that? I don't even know who you who you talking. To. Who are you referring to? You know, but that's the yeah. way it's supposed to be.
2: Yeah, and that's that's exactly that's exactly what it was. So for for a generation out there that picked up, you know, or got really interested in guitar in 1982, thank you uh, from all of us because uh,
0: uh, well, that you know very really made an indel-
2: indelible mark. So right. Ricky, I, I want to thank you again. The new album Sobering Times uh, is available later this week. I know it's available. You can get signed copies on your website.
0: Um, right, coming uh, out sure worldwide april 9th which is friday and it's going to be in you know a bunch of um whatever brick brick and mortar stores are out there these days and and also um all of the online uh portals is that what you call portals stores yeah stream the the,
2: the people who pay you pennies for your work yeah Don't yeah be on all of but
0: it. um I i understand but um and uh yeah but like you said uh, that so that'll be you can go to amazon as as of friday or where whatever your place is where you purchase music um and then also if you would like you mentioned if you'd like a signed copy with some swag that i throw in there like guitar picks and stickers and stuff you go to rickybird.com i'd be happy to send one of those out we also have copies of the last one clean getaway and cool t-shirts for the summer so show business baby
2: I wish you all the best with the album, a fantastic, and hopefully you'll be able to to get out and get that music live, uh, you know, to for everyone's enjoyment, uh, very very soon. I wish you all the best. I, man.
0: I appreciate, it. yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I want to get out to it. My my guitars are in cases, and I can hear them muttering. <laughs> yeah,
2: like an animal in a case. Take us out. Play right. me. Play me. All right, man. Thank you so much, Ricky. I appreciate it very much.
0: Thank- thanks for your time have a great alright
2: again thank you to Ricky Bird we're going to turn our attention now to uh, Samantha Fish who is a uh, great uh, young blues musician uh, kind of a blues rock musician she had her last album out in 2019 Killer Be Kind uh, which fantastic record uh, you want to check that out but she is doing something that is just wonderful to say out loud in 2021 she is coming to Pittsburgh uh, doing two shows Jurgles in Warrendale on April 20th, this 5 o'clock show, 9 o'clock show. Um, she's doing actually kind of like a two-week run uh, from the 14th uh, through the 28th, I believe it is, uh, kind of hitting Midwest, uh, central part of the United States. Uh, we are lucky enough to have her for two shows in Pittsburgh. Um, as I've said several times during this pandemic, if you're a listener to the show, I would go to see anybody play anything right now, so... To have somebody come and play an original kick-ass blues rock music, um, say no more. Uh, so, without further ado, Samantha Fish. But my pleasure to welcome back to Iron City Rocks. We have Samantha Fish on the line. How are you doing this morning, Samantha?
4: I'm doing great. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well. All things considered, it's 2021. We're getting back to live music, and uh, it's so exciting to talk to a musician. We've we have been talking to musicians for 12 years now at Iron City Rocks, but it's so grateful to talk to a musician who's getting on a bus and heading our way. Uh, It's been about a year and a half since I've had that opportunity to talk to somebody coming into town. Um, You're doing kind of two weeks packed full of shows. Can you talk about kind of the prep work, the contingency plans and all the, the things that go into deciding to go out on the road now?
4: Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's, there's so many more moving parts now than ever before. You know, we always have been keeping, you know, we've done a couple miniature tours, mm-hmm. like, you know, four or five days since at a time. Um, but it's been really difficult to pull off, you know, some of these longer routed shows. So it's like, you know, having to keep an eye on the state regulations and infection rate, you know, like just spikes in infections and like right. where's a good place to go, trying to keep everybody safe, but also work with venues that will work with us and implement, like, really, you know, these safety protocols, social distancing, masking, you know, whatever. Right. It, it, it is complicated because every state has different, you know, rules. So it's, like, yeah. up to these venues to kind of interpret the new rules, and they're constantly changing. So, um, you know, that's been the challenge um, for us. You know, my my portion of that has been to trim down the band and go out with a smaller unit, just, you know, less people yeah. in the group, less less potential to bring it back and you know uh that's into into our space so you know we've got some very strict rules like backstage and getting in and out of the venue and you know obviously we're still not doing meet and greets (laughs) yeah (laughs) some people's disappointment but you know it's it's just it's it's for the time being you know we got to keep things keep things as safe as possible that's our first priority but it's nice to get to go play music again again my god you know
2: yeah, it's probably, at this point in your career, the, the playing the show is probably the least of your worries. It's the, the 22 and a half hours of, of BS that surround it <laughs> that, that make it tough. Um, Do you have, uh, is this like hell for your road manager? Is is Do they take care of, you know, keeping on top of the news and the hot spots and all that well, kind
4: of stuff? Well, you know, once it's really not the road. Like the road manager, he's in the, he's in the you know the trenches with us yeah. um, we haven't had to like cancel any dates while we're on tour um but you know we had like some situations like we're tech- we went to Texas and mm-hmm. then between us booking the shows in Texas and in our- the actual dates they changed the rules where yeah. they weren't allowing mask or they weren't um enforcing masking anymore and they weren't enforcing you know all businesses open at 100% but it was kind of like our responsibility to the ticket buyers. When we made the agreement, you know, not everybody's comfortable with the hundred percent capacity show. Right. So, you know, we kind of have these agreements made that we, we have to fulfill um, before things can fluctuate too much. Sure. Um, but, you know, uh, knock on wood, not, we haven't had to like pull out of any dates yet. Sure. I, I don't think we're going to have to, I, I feel like, I feel pretty good about what we've done so far. I mean, a lot of outdoors, a lot of spaced out things. The venues are working really, really hard with us to, yeah. to just ensure that everybody feels good and safe.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, when you think about the economic impact of, of what you're doing, is I mean, even if you can't play 100% capacity, you're still bringing people who are going to have a drink or two, or maybe a you know a sandwich or some wings, or you know, you're still you know helping infl- infuse money into venues you know more even more so than just your band your crew your you know, merch people so i mean there's this, there's this
4: industry has so many moving parts yeah, yeah and just by doing a show you know this doesn't just pay me and my band um you know it's it's not just about going out and making money because honestly there's less money to make now <laughs> like, yeah just yeah. because of where we're at but you know, it's about, yeah, the venue, getting to have people in there, getting to sell drinks. You know, it's yeah. about the crew people getting to go and set up stages and run sound and, you know, yeah. do everything that, a, that someone on a crew does. It's about managers making a commission and booking agencies making a commission. I mean, it's, there's a lot of moving parts that go into making things happen. And, yeah. you know, we have to, we really have to figure out new ways to, to keep this industry going or it's not going to be here anymore.
2: Yeah, is it? I I think of an artist like you. I've had the opportunity to talk to some, you know, recently about this to some major artists who can quite honestly coast a little bit on money they've made, or you know, can probably squeak out enough money from the Spotify commissions and things like that. But in a in a band such as yours, you know, where you've been on a very nice trajectory, you know, as far as building popularity and recognition. Was this probably the worst possible time? You had just come off a, a number one blues album. Um, you know, obviously, no one could anticipate this. But was this especially difficult to an artist at your stature?
4: Um, honestly, man. I mean, I I, I haven't been too focused on. I mean, we're all struggling and sure. suffering through this. Every musician I know. I'm fortunate that you know, I, I had the ability to, to coast for a little while and, okay. and, you know, but it, I think the hardest thing, um, emotionally is, is just the loss, like feeling the loss of momentum and yeah. feeling the loss of like, you know, this is what I meant to be doing. Um, right. yeah. and I, you know, so what's my purpose now? If I don't, if I don't do this, I've, this is a part, this is who I am. Um, yeah. i a them- music maker. So. You know, but I personally I, I channeled that into other things. Um, I made an album this year with my time off I started writing, you know, so I don't really feel like I I wasted my time or sure. you know that I I didn't make the most of it. But I mean it, it it's hard emotionally for everybody, especially, you know, people who've dedicated their lives to this. You know, we mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many things that you pass up on, you know, how many I mean, you know, it's like you, you've got a love and passion for this. You miss out on a lot of things, you know, family stuff. Yeah. Um, you miss out on friends. You miss out on on these like um, big life moments in a lot of ways because you you're chasing this thing that you love so much, and so to have it go away, and and to feel like you know the people who are empowered don't don't value it, you know, because it was hard to get any kind of assistance for it. Um you know, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow, but you just got to keep moving. And I don't know. I mean, I, I just kept channeling that into making more music and trying to stay optimistic. Like, you know, this is going to come back. Yeah. People, there, there seems to be a hunger for it. It's just going to take a while and it's going to be a little tricky, you know, and it's, but it's our job to figure it out.
2: Now you, you mentioned an, an album, um, this would be the follow-up to the wildly successful killer, Be Kind. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the musical direction of where you're at? You've obviously got a lot of different kind of influences moving through your music.
4: Yeah. Um, you know, this is, it's hard for me to verbalize yet because we, it it just happened. Like I just finished it and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's definitely it's guitar driven and, um, it's melodic. There's a lot of, you know, I feel like the songs are very diverse, but it kind of, you know, it's got a rock edge to it. It's all, you know, everything I do is kind of bluesy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's still a strong influence. Um, maybe it's got a little more of like a pop influence. I don't know. Dare I say like It's a scary <laughs> it's a word. Like, I know. But, you know, I I always like revert back to like the Beatles and the Stones were pop music, too. Yeah. Uh, when I when I think of pop music, I think of, you know, catchy melodies and like hooks and, yeah. you know, and that focusing transcends on, on, like, the, style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, man. I mean, it's hard for me to describe. It's, it's me. It's it's exciting, though. I think uh, thematically, lyrically, I was kind of surprised at how positive the record turned out. You know, I thought I was going to write a real, like, dirge after this last year. But for the most part, like most of the songs, I think I was kind of writing from the perspective of, like, wanting to be empowered and, and feel, like, control in the situation yeah. that... I think a lot of us didn't feel control in. And so I ended up with this like pretty upbeat, like, like it's like very, uh, it's kind of a sexy album. It's very empowering and um, you know, about taking control. And I, I think it's a, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm kind of surprised myself that that was the theme. I, I felt the yeah, most prevalent the, throughout. The
2: timing of that might be, you know, really well, if you would release this eight, 10 months ago, that may not have, resonated with people but i think is you know we get to things hopefully reopening and, and people are vaccinated and, and things like that people might get that yeah. kind of it's kind of like the the first nice warm weekend of spring when you can finally open the windows in your car and drive around you know you kind of feel like wow you got through that crap let's move on yeah. and enjoy life
4: um you yeah you, exactly it, that's how it feels to me
2: you've got it uh, you know it, it's very difficult to try to put a a pin in what style of music you know you play obviously you've got some you know sick guitar work and, and as i mentioned the album the last album went on the top of the blues chart but you also made a nice dent in the folk album chart but realizing you were born not that long ago i don't want to give away ages but how did you kind of get into you know, the styles of music you are, you know, is a person, you know, I think about what would have been on the radio during, you know, kind of your formative music years. And I don't hear that in what you play. Was was it something that, you know, I know your parents both were into music. Was it just something you kind of heard around the house that kind of got you into it? Or did you have friends that were kind of into, you know, some other stuff?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, I grew up listening to the radio and yeah, I was like, uh, early 2000s kids so you know I and I was into all that stuff you know like but when I started playing guitar you know I was realizing like yeah there's no like I wasn't hearing much guitar on pop radio exactly you hear it on, like, yeah. alternative radio but when I started playing guitar I mean I always listened to classic rock as a kid because that's what my dad my right. mom listened to and so you know I was always into like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and right. Led Zeppelin and And so when I picked up the guitar, it was like naturally I kind of gravitated to that style of music, Um, you know. And I'm just kind of the way I am, like my personality, I want to know who Keith Richards liked listening to. How did Keith Richards become Keith Richards? And so you find yourself going down this rabbit hole of like everything comes back to the blues. And it's, um, you know, so I, I think I started discovering artists like that. And then just growing up in Kansas City there's such a strong tradition of jazz and blues here. Yeah. And when I started playing guitar, I was like, we'll go down to a blues jam and sit in and figure out how to improvise and, you know, go to knuckleheads and see who's coming to town. And a lot of times it was like country artists or blues artists or roots artists. So it was like, I was constantly seeing the style of music around me and it just kind of, you know, pushed me to like dig and, and find, you know, things that I really like. And honestly, my musical taste is across the board. Like it's completely I mean, I think it's like everybody. I, I'm not, I'm not special in that. I think, I think a lot of people have like varying tastes in music. You know, we don't all just like like one genre. And we stick with it. I, I think it's about finding things in every kind of genre that resonate with you. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how I feel about my original music. You know, I, I don't, I don't feel so inclined to, to set in one spot, but I feel like. You know, the, the bluesy element throughout, it's like when I was learning how to play guitar and learning how to sing, I, I was really focused on great soul singers and great, you know, blues guitar players. So I think everything I say with the guitar has this kind of, his, you know, for me, my personal history attached to it. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of has a vibe that, that skews a little bluesy. Um, and I try to I try to bring that to everything I do, you know. Um,
2: yeah, that's... I'm, like it, a, I'm in, That's one of the great things I think with with musicians who are interested in the blues is is it's kind of the greats all seem to go back and listen to, you know, who influenced, you know, Keith Richards. And you get to Chuck Berry. And and I'm convinced that all roads lead back to Albert King and and Buddy Holly myself. But I mean... uh, that's actually, a, you know, is a very common thing with blues arts where you don't necessarily hear that in some other genres where, where people go back and, and kind of seek out the, the masters and, and the originators. But, um, but I love the fact that, you know, when I listen to your album, it doesn't, you know, uh, you can hear influences, but it doesn't just mimic, you know, this is not, you know, if Bonnie Rate was 35. This was the album she would have made, you know, but you can feel some yeah. influence. And I, I love that about the music. And, and it's great to see you pushing it in, in those different directions.
4: Um, well, so, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, be myself and make something that's unique and, um, you know, and, and find my own happy space within the, within the music. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like, you know, I got to go out and play this stuff night tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got to be like, I got to love what I'm doing, you know? And and it's fun for me to kind of push the envelope and experiment and, and you know, pull in as many different styles and genres as possible. And, you know, it's fun for me.
2: When you put together an album, though, do you have things where you say, okay, this maybe doesn't fit inside the scope of the album? When you were mentioning pop, I thought about, Kind of, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody recently about kind of how Taylor Swift's career over the last, say, eight years has kind of gone from pop to country to, you know, to, you know, I'm not even sure what you would call the latest music, but you know, each of the she's albums like, has a very she's kind like of like making theme.
4: pop folk, I guess. Yeah. yeah,
2: I mean, when you approach an album, do you say, okay, this is kind of the context, or I've written six songs, this this song I'm working on right now doesn't really fit that vibe, or are you just kind of this is what I wrote at this moment in time. If However it flows, this is me.
4: Yeah. I mean, I always go into the studio with too much material. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally it's like, you might, you might at the end of the session be like, you know, this one song for whatever reason just doesn't quite, doesn't really live with these other songs. Yeah, you know, that's, 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 that's kind exactly of common what sometimes, but like, you know, I I don't when I'm writing something I love you know I'm like okay you know sometimes I set out to write something particularly strange just mm-hmm. because it's a challenge for me, and I don't want to write the same songs over and over again sure. you know, so even if even if they're like weird going into the studio I, I kind of like that about it I'm like yeah the weirder the better you know we're yeah. we're doing something new.
2: Well, that that's that's cool yeah, I've often wondered you know do you end up with uh, here's a great song but it doesn't fit so we'll table it for the next record and. You know, it's always kind of a, you know, I'm sorry, go
4: ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, generally for me, it's not like stylistically it doesn't fit. It's just like, you know, we got one too many and I got to pick the one that speaks to the least. And for whatever reason, you know, that one just didn't quite make the cut. And I I mean, I have that like I think I think I have that on every album. (laughs) Honestly, there's probably like one or two songs, you know, sprinkled throughout my career that just got dropped off. God, I hope they don't all come
2: out on like one crappy compilation. One giant compilation, yeah. When, when
4: you're,
2: <laughs> uh, Lord only knows by that point of your career how we'll be distributing music. But what, when you put together an album now, do you have to be kind of cognizant of, of, of vinyl because it's become such a big part of the physical media? Do you have to think in terms of, you know, I need to keep this under X number of minutes or it's going to spill over two records into three or one into two? Does that way yeah, I any mean, decision
4: we, absolutely you know and I, I generally leave those kind of like stressors for the, the record label yeah. I'm sure they love me for it but yeah I mean it's something we talk about like hey, you know this is too many songs for vinyl so what are we gonna you know how are we gonna handle this? you know what do you want to miss from the vinyl? Um, but because I think that vinyl is really really important we yeah. you know as of now it's like my physical sales on the road. You know, people don't have CD players anymore. I, yeah. I don't have a CD player. I don't have one. Like I used to have one in my laptop. I used to have one in my car. Not yeah. anymore. They took you know? them away. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is fine because I hated dragging that stupid book of CDs around with me everywhere. <laughs> which is like another big thing I had to carry. I'm, I'm okay with, you know, with that. But I think, you know, vinyl is such a collecting, like a collector's thing. Like that's, that's for somebody who. Who wants to read the liner notes? Who wants that artwork, you know? Yeah. Um, I think vinyl's really special. I think yeah. it has a feeling when when you put the needle down and it starts spinning, there's like an extra, there's like a layer of warmth, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it, to me, a vinyl is like a very personal experience where, you know, um, CD's kind of a means to an end. Um, I mean, I, I still like CDs, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think about the vinyl heavily when, yeah. we're, when we're making albums cool last
2: last question you are playing two shows in in warrendale right outside of pittsburgh and then the very next night two shows in cleveland did was that something that somebody ran past you I mean, four shows two days or is that you're just so glad to get out you know do seven shows in two days if you had to
4: well you know i mean <laughs> i'll be honest i'll be um i'll be taking ibuprofen probably that day yeah and like, it seemed, seemed kind of mean water and Rest of my well, it's kind of the world we live in right now. i keep joking around, I'm like, we're like doing little Motown sets. Um, because where we're at, you know, we have like a quarter capacity in a room. They we do the show, they kick everybody out, and they bring in a whole new crowd, and we do a different show. Um, you know, it it can be it is a little tiring. Um, but when I'm on stage, I don't feel that, I only feel that when I get off. yeah, it's it's and. 1130 yeah, I mean, I at night, about, you'll feel it. But I'm happy that people feel safe and they trust us and they want to come out and share something with us at a time that it's been really difficult to share with other people. And it's been really difficult to trust and to go out and, and do things. And, you know, I'm I'm appreciative that we have the opportunity to, to make something happen when nothing's happening.
2: Yeah. Well, as, as a concert going fan and, and a fan of, of your music i'd be delighted to see you come into town i want to thank you so much again on the 20th you'll be in pittsburgh and warndale playing jurgles um the very next night in cleveland for the folks uh, a little uh, west here so thank you so much samantha we look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks
4: thank you so much i appreciate it
2: all right that about concludes this episode of iron city rocks big thank you to samantha fish again she's coming to pittsburgh uh, you can visit samanthafish.com. There's links to get the tickets. Uh, again, it's an early show, 5 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Um, live music, say no more. Also, thank you to uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Ricky Bird. Uh, Sobering Times is available now. Uh, you visit his website. You can get uh, signed copies, etc. Check out his work. Um, just tremendous, tremendous humanitarian. Uh, great to see that uh, someone who who went through the struggles and now is paying it forward and uh, Nils Lofgren uh, the uh, bonus tracks available now um, hoping beyond hope that we get to see uh, the E Street Band or Nils solo band uh, come through Pittsburgh before too long as he mentioned in that interview obviously doing a full on Springsteen size tour is probably not going to be an easy thing to get rolling anytime soon but As Nils mentions, he loves playing the smaller places, so hopefully we'll get the Nils Lofgren and his brother Tom and and the company maybe into town before too long. So thank you to all of those folks. Uh, You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, Iron City Rocks. We're there. Check us out, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Also, you invite you to check out the new ironcityrocks.com website. Kind of an overhaul, fresh coat of paint. Uh, There's contact link there if you want to get a hold of us or if you need any information on the bands that have been on the show or if you enjoyed this episode and were not aware of the previous 457 episodes that led up to this. So thank you for checking us out, and we will talk to you next time. <music>